Brideson is the State Coordinator, Aboriginal Mental Health Workforce Program, and Donna Stanley, Acting District Coordinator, Aboriginal Mental Health and Drug and Alcohol Services, Western New South Wales, LHD. Um, Donna has been working with our, within health, but particularly mental health, for more than 20 years, and is a District Coordinator for the Aboriginal Mental Health and Drug and at Western New South Wales Local Health District and brings dedication and passion to her current role working with Aboriginal people suffering from mental illness. And at a strategic level, Donna has worked in the area of policy, service planning and development, an Aboriginal mental health workforce. And I'll also introduce Tom Brideson, um, who's a Kamilaroi Gomeroi, is that right? Um, born man in northwest New South Wales, Tom works and lives in Orange, New South Wales, and is a New South Wales State Coordinator for the Aboriginal Mental Health Workforce Program. Um, he's been actively involved in a range of Aboriginal mental health development since the early 1990s. Um, please welcome both Donna and Tom. Thank you. Um, well, thanks very much, and thanks for the opportunity to, for both of us to, to be here. And I was just, we, were, we drove in from Orange earlier today, and we um, got to head back sort of virtually not long afterwards, after we present. And um, we're fortunate enough to sort of see some of the uh, later parts of the conversations and the questions and different things that uh, when we're talking about underserved populations, um, you know, there's lots of similarities um, across um, certainly underserved populations and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are certainly uh, an underserved population in the context of mental health. Um, the other thing I wouldn't mind just sort of touching on is, is the, um, I'm a Camilleroy man uh, uh, from Gunnedah. I was born in Gunnedah, grew up in Canberra mostly, um, and lived in a number of different places uh, since then. And um, the issues, I guess, that sort of resonated just in that previous conversations were issues around confidentiality and uh, issues around small populations, uh, everyone knows each other, um, the uh, people often related to each other, and um, in particular the First Nations groups, knowing the connections of family and the connections of community and, uh, is, is sometimes a, a really tricky thing to navigate. And um, how we're going to sort of work through today, I thought, that I've got a couple of presentations and some of it's uh, more higher level um, activity uh, and then um, and talk about the workforce program as well that I coordinate and that Donna's involved with and, and a whole range of different people across New South Wales. And, uh, and then we'll, and Donna's going to present uh, a lot of the sort of clinical based activity and uh, uh, working through things that we should know and things that we need to be aware of and all that sort of stuff. And then we can just sort of just have an open conversation about that and um, I'll just pass all those questions to Donna uh, because she likes all those questions. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I thought, better get that too. Um, I thought I'd talk about a couple of things I sort of, in thinking about today, um, there's a couple of things that are really probably useful, not just as uh, clinicians and people that are working in this in the space, but to uh, the mental health or the nurses and the midwife uh, association. Uh, 
uh, more broadly. And one of them is this activity that we've been involved with around this leadership in mental health. And in particular, um, this is only fresh off, off the press, this stuff. Uh, we've been working on this, uh, and we launched it last year um, in, at the Themes um, Conference in uh, Canberra. Um, but, so I'll talk a little bit about that, and then I'll talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the current state of play, what's happening around the space, and then I'll walk through the more so around the Aboriginal Mental Health Workforce Program in order to get a sense, which is only a program in New South Wales, which you know, um, we've got some quite a good set of runs on the board, I guess, in regards to that. Um, the first obvious thing is you know, the diversity of people and diversity of nations across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And if you're looking at this, say, across the, the space of Europe, you can see that you know, there's extraordinary amounts, amounts of uh, diversity in communities. Um, languages were about 260-odd languages at the time um, when um, settlement happened, or as many people say, invasion happened, or um, pioneering, I guess. Uh, but however we describe this stuff, it, it's, this is what it was at, the, at a point in time. There's only about 14 languages that are currently fluently spoken on a daily basis. Uh, so that's a, a, a stark um, difficulty, I think. There is some work happening across, certainly in New South Wales, in terms of revival of language and that type of thing. The other things I wanted to just quickly talk about were the sustained efforts that have been happening over the last number of years, probably since the Close the Gap and the public apology that, um, um, what's his name, Rudd? <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Rudd was talking about. Um, and, uh, and what's happened since then, particularly around the Close the Gap uh, processes. I'm gonna have to move closer because my eyesight's not that good anymore. Um, but in, in regards to, and I've got a list of acronyms uh, to make life easier, and I'm happy to, for this to be distributed wherever you want it distributed. Um, but we've had some real sustained effort um, in the mental health space for probably since around the um, uh, public apology or the parliamentary apology. And the Close the Gap campaign was launched around that time. There was, uh, there's some work around a, a National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Advisory Group. These are all real long, horrible acronyms. Um, and that's a ministerial committee that answers to three ministers in the Commonwealth Government. It's quite cumbersome. Um, we've got, you know, in some states, mental health commissions, and, um, and we've got this thing called the NHLF, which is all of the peak Indigenous Doctors Association, Indigenous Allied Health Association, the Congress of uh, Indigenous Med, uh, Nurses and Midwives, uh, the Lewitcher Institute, uh, the NACHO, which is the National Aboriginal Community Control Organisation, uh, and a whole range of other peak Aboriginal organisations that come together as potentially one voice with, in terms of the context around policy development and advice to the likes of um, government uh, and so on. 
Um, we've also got um, state mental health commissions. We've also got um, the NACHO and the NACHO affiliates. So we've got a big national Aboriginal community control services. And then we've got state-based um, affiliates to that um, in the same way that nurses have in each of the states and territories. And we've got this thing called NATSIMAL, which is the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Leadership in Mental Health, which essentially came out of a whole process that, that where the commissions uh, are supporting this leadership in mental health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, one of the tasks that we were involved in was the development of the Gaya Dewey Declaration. Some of the difficulties that we've had over the years, obviously, is that we've got all these processes of who implements what. Uh, so we've got you know, Commonwealth and state governments, we've got AMS and, and, and some of the peak organisations around Aboriginal medical services. We've got these new things called PHNs, um, uh, Community Managed Sector and uh, you know, mental health commissions vary across the country. Then we've got you know, a whole series of complicated plans and things about what it is that we need to do and how it is that we need to do it. Two of which around specifically around Aboriginal mental health and wellbeing, uh, at a Commonwealth level and at a state level in New South Wales are currently under review and they're, they're, um, they'll be shortly out for consultation, we believe. We've got a whole process around suicide prevention activity. Um, we've got commission plans and strategies and, and, and um, other big, broad health plans. And this is, I guess, in some ways just what some of that looks like in, in terms of the environment. So New South Wales, the top three, at a Commonwealth level, we've got a whole range of other things. And these are only some of them. And this is the, the, some of the difficulty, I guess, around this space is trying to decipher and get into what does this mean for us? Um, the other thing I wanted to just talk about is the current state of play uh, around psychological distress. Um, being much higher for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations. Mental health uh, problems, um, hospitalisations over two times what it should be, um, and psychiatric disability uh, were double that of non-Aboriginal people, and suicides, uh, as suicide rates were twice that of um, non-Aboriginal people. And really quickly, I don't want to bore you with stats, but this is the population distribution of Aboriginal people across the country. So what we've got is a very large numbers of young people, and if you, 63% are under the age of 31. So when you look at that in comparison to non-Aboriginal people, you've got a, a very different looking population group. And therefore, often services and different scenarios need to factor that into the development of what people might be doing. These are the death rates across uh, between, uh, in comparison to Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And it's really quite a, a startling um, graph, if, if you like, uh, where the, 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 it's very different for the context around deaths in Aboriginal communities in comparison to deaths in, in uh, non-Aboriginal communities. And this is just a, a comparison between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal suicide rates. Um, and um, what we don't have is, is many deaths over the age of 45 uh, from suicide. 
Really quickly, I'll talk to the Farawata Declaration, which led to the Gayajui Declaration. You'll get sick of my language in a minute. Um, the origins of the Gayajui Declaration, which is an Australian declaration around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health leadership, came from all of the commissions in the country at the time agreeing to this thing called the Farawata Declaration. Where that came from was that the International Initiative for Leadership in Mental Health had have a series of uh, meetings on a biannual basis, the next one being in Sydney uh, in February next year. Um, all of those commissions came together in 2012, both Australia and across the world, all the mental health commissions came together. They supported this declaration that was developed by all of the Indigenous people that were attending the International Initiative for Leadership in Mental Health. And so the commissions in Australia also supported the dec that declaration. And they decided to um, support a group of us that were involved with commissions at the time in the development of something here within the context of Australia. So what does that mean in terms of the Farawata Declaration? What does that mean here? And that's the basis of the, um, of the um, Gay Adjuri Declaration. The es essence of the Farawata Declaration was to reverse the negative effects of colonisation uh, and that people, uh, Indigenous people across the world are visible and uh, contributing members of the societies in which they're in. Um, I won't go through these, there's just a no number of people that are involved in this, um, but what we wanted to do in adapting that was to, we did, developed a discussion paper, flicked that out to a, a whole range of people uh, and peak groups. We um, also, well, that was me. Um, I was thinking it was someone out there. Um, had a, a community-based workshop that, that um, had some feedback. And we also consulted with the Farawata group that developed that big worldwide declaration. Now, what we did was uh, we also wanted to... People might know, but there's this report that was done back in 1995, uh, the Ways Forward Report, which was part of the National Mental Health Strategy. And it was called the, uh, the Ways Forward Report. And one of the authors was Pat uh, Delaney, uh, Swan at the time. Um, and she was involved with a group of elders. So we went, we asked Pat if we could um, approach the elders and get some names around what should we call this declaration. So we did. And they came up with the words around Gaia, Dewey, being proud spirit. Um, and the language groups in which they're being used. I won't go too much into this because I'll give you more around the, the, the details about how to get hold of this. Uh, but it's about, it's got five themes in it. One is about ensuring that the concepts around uh, Indigenous or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social and emotional wellbeing um, and mental health uh, are embedded within systems. The other one's around um, the, the best of both worlds approach, trying to ensure that what we've got is um, uh, traditional methods or traditional ways of doing things, 
combined with clinical approaches as the best way of moving forward. Also talked about um, clinical outcome measures and how do we balance that best of both worlds approach in that context of clinical outcomes. Um, and then we're talking about the whole workforce in terms of how do we build the workforce and the leadership within that workforce um, around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and values uh, and in the context of suicide prevention. Then we talked about the context of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership itself. What does that look like? What does that mean? How do we use that to influence some of the other spaces in which we work? I won't go into those things um, or that, but there is a website that we've got and we've got a whole range of different resources that are on that website and um, there's also what we're asking organisations to do, and this is where New South Wales Nurses uh, Association might come into it, is what we're saying, if you think that this is valuable, by all means pledge your support to, to that. Um, and people can do that either individually or organisationally. Um, and it's about essentially um, saying that this is something that might be of value. Um, this is just a, a, a bit of a framework about what the Indigenous leadership framework might look like from the basis of the Farawata Declaration, so the previous one. And what they're talking about is the qualities of people that are in these leadership spaces, so people that are informed, people that are credible, people that are strategic, connected uh, and sustainable. Um, they're talking about um, the networks being, you know, at a basic end, being very tribal, being very, you know, within the context of family, being and community, uh, the service sectors in which they're working in, uh, the academic and professional spaces, and and the political spaces. So this is all the spaces in which we need to operate across, and then looking at uh, potentially some of those outcomes in terms of value adding to a system in which we're working in. Um, I won't go into that. The, what Mark said was previously around the, uh, a, a publication that we were involved with more recently. Um, and this is a free, it's online, it's available to anyone that wants one, um, copy, um, and it's got 31 chapters in this whole book. Um, so by all means, uh, feel free to, um, to get hold of that. And it's got a whole lot of things from suicide prevention to uh, clinical practice and values, traditional healers. It's got a whole lot of other activity. I told you I'd done some stuff around the acronyms um, and I won't go into that any further just yet. Um, the other little thing I wanted to just talk to was the workforce program that I coordinate. and. Um, Probably should have done this earlier, but I thought I'd introduce you to my family. Um, and this is probably uh, about a quarter of my immediate family that are around, you know, first cousins and, and, and family that came from my, um, my mother's was one of nine uh, across her, or siblings across her family. And this is about a quarter of that at this stage. Um, again, I won't go into that, but I will go into this because I, I think this is really important because it's sort of, it, it's something that we know. We know about things like uh, the Rubik's Cubes and, 
and that sort of stuff. The reason why I like this is because it actually re represents what happens to us all the, all the way through, is that what happens when things happen and change is that things happen and change. It's the same as the Rubik's Cube. So trying to get to a point where we get a formula to fix that is really, really hard. And over the years, what we've got is, is, a, is a process of saying, well, what was, how do we make what was into something that what is now? And that's a hard thing to, to do. Um, so what we've had, and you'll notice that the, the cube grows over time, and this constant spinning of the cube happens over that period of time as well. So what we had was, you know, in 1770, we had some boats that came into Australia's waters. Um, we also then had the Constitution, which really didn't do much for us uh, by valuing us uh, as First Nations people. And then in 1967, we had the referendum that really didn't do much except uh, add us to statistics, add us to the, the context of things. Uh, but we are still yet to, I guess, enjoy the same uh, health status uh, and social circumstances in which other people uh, are afforded. Um, and then I just like to throw this little one in because we, we never know who's in control of the cube. Um, that affects us. We tend not to have control over that cube, uh, governments and everyone else. I won't go into that one, but I will talk about the uh, building blocks around the workforce program and why it's so important in terms of not just building the workforce, but also the future leadership around this space. One of the things that we need to do is build numbers of people. If Whatever happens now or into the future, um, if we don't have people that are directly involved in the clinical mental health care of others, then we've missed the boat. And um, the, the more that we can actually build people, the better we're going to be. Ensuring that there's an appropriate award structure, like I would imagine that most, if not all, are nurses in the room. Um, uh, I'm not. I don't think Donna is. Um, but we fit under award structures that, that are valuable um, in the same way that other professions do. Um, we need a valued workforce in the system. We need a valued workforce also in communities. So we've got to try and balance these two lives of being Aboriginal in communities but also being an Aboriginal person in a, in a workplace. Um, we need to be able to develop career pathways and opportunities, support growth and development, and the catch cry that I talk about is the investment today will be an investment tomorrow if we do it well. The workforce program that I coordinate came out of, it's been growing for many, many years, but it came out of the New South Wales Aboriginal Mental Health and Wellbeing Policy. What happened at the time was area health services were funded for, there was 19 positions across the mainstream system um, as enhancements of Aboriginal mental health workers. But what happened also was that many of the existing services converted existing vacancies into traineeships as well. We've got a reference group that oversees it and we've got a model that's um, developed to train a, a skilled and supported workforce usual sort of policy language around 
increasing the workforce, obviously, increasing the quality, increasing access, um, increasing um, the responsiveness of service, and obviously to improve treatment outcomes. Some of the assumptions that sort of sit behind the program are these, that building local people in local communities, um, both for Aboriginal communities but also for mental health services. It increases a trained and skilled workforce. So what we have, and as, as you'll see when I describe it, what you have is, is people, Aboriginal people involved in every single discussion that takes place in the workplace around Aboriginal issues, as opposed to what we usually get, which is you know the um, uh, training that's offered in the workplace is you know off you go and do an online thing, off you go and do a you know a two day course or around Aboriginal people or diversity or whatever it might be. Um, we're saying have one there every single day and it will actually work a whole lot better. Um, and they will make a valuable contribution, not only to the workplace, but to the ways in which people are dealing with Aboriginal people. And we've already had some evidence of that. Um, and then we've got this whole process around you know, a valued professional group. It broadens the base uh, for potential employment and career opportunities, and I'll talk to that shortly. Um, and what will happen is that leadership will start to emerge. Um, but what will also happen is that we've got potential to extend people's careers if we do it well. Um, we have, and this is not a, a coming here and saying everyone's done bad things, but no professional group has really effectively built enough Aboriginal people within their profession. And that's a real shame because one of the things that this workforce program emerged from was because that happened or didn't happen in this instance. Um, the benefits will be massive. They'll be not only to the individuals and families and communities and services, but you know, if you look at the context about you know, having a career, having a, uh, an income that's coming in on a regular basis, you know, it's the difference between eating chips every night or eating steak. Um, and you know, that has to be useful and valuable to health, generally. Um, and that what we've managed to do is not take this approach of evidence-based practice and trying to fit everything into the context of that. What we've actually tried to do is say, what works and how do we build the evidence on that? So looking at the context around practice-based evidence rather than evidence-based practice, if that makes sense. The program itself, um, is about, it's a three-year traineeship program where people are employed full-time on a full-time basis and have still got a job at the end of that three years. Um, but the first three years um, is really about um, trainees as employees, but they have to undergo a, a, a compulsory university degree. So this is about growing a, a workforce in a local area and, and recruiting and developing that that workforce. Um, the courses in which people undertake is the uh, university degree, um, and it's been agreed at a, across all services that we uh, are involved in around the Bachelor of Health Science and Mental Health. 
And the reason why it is is because it actually fits with people actually living in their communities. You know, this whole idea of let's send everyone off to Sydney to get training and then come back and hope that they come back rarely happens. Or the other thing that usually happens is let's get some Sydney people, give them an incentive to come out to Burke or, you know, uh, Walgett or wherever it might be and they'll stay. Now, unless they get married up in the first year or so, they're gone. And the reasons why people are gone is because their family and their supports. So we're talking about instead of trying to import people in, let's actually grow people from here and they'll probably more likely to stay. Um, so there's clin mandatory clinical placements as part of their degree, uh, compulsory residentials, so people go down to residential school and then go back home. Um, and the degree is based on the national practice standards for the mental health workforce. Uh, the five disciplines agreed to this. We didn't do this. Uh, we just aligned the curriculum and the clinical placements to the uh, national practice standards that the professions have agreed to. And we were the first university in the country to do so uh, in, in uh, 2003. Um, so, trainees are employed under an award structure. Uh, when trainees complete, they transfer to the Health Professionals Award. Uh, so this is the same award that social workers uh, and other OTs uh, and other professions sit under. And this was based on advice we had from Workplace Relations in 2014. We had it happening since about 2009, but we got it confirmed in 2014. So people who are on ongoing employment in a career that's equitable, by status of an award to other professions that are operating in the space. Um, we've got an implementation resource that is the practice-based evidence that we're building and have done for some time, and it outlines all responsibilities. There's seven chapters in this, and we're currently updating this, this work. And that the qualifications in 2012 were um, recognised by Indigenous Allied Health Australia, who um, uh, so people can be members whether they're students or graduates. Now, this is where the important thing happens, is that these are the communities in which we've had trainees in. So they, this, out of everything that I've talked about, this is probably the most important of, it, of all. Because instead of trying to grow people um, at one place, we're actually trying to grow people, and we are growing people at multiple places. Um, we continue to publish evidence around this program. We continue to publish um, extensively around the work in which we've done and are continuing to do. And what we've got across this spaces, you know, the common structural elements about recognition by academia, recognition across the mental health professions, recognition across the structures of awards, of workplace, of, of, of Aboriginal communities. Um, but where we're, this leadership sort of stuff is start, starting to emerge is that people will go into all sorts of different career pathways and different areas. Each will have um, similar or, or different spaces in which they might work. So it might be mental health, but it might also end up being community services as well. So the likes of docs or, or family community services, pardon me, uh, in New South Wales, might be interested in this type of program. Um, 
but they all share a common fl platform, and that's the, the CSU program that we've been involved with since about 93. This is just some of the examples of different people and what they're doing. Uh, or it's a little bit old now, but it's, it's you know, where people's careers have taken them. Um, and this is only a few of the graduates of, of, of the program. Um, Donna's in there, and she's been, you know, involved in mental health for, for many, many years. Uh, went off to Queensland, was a coordinator of a health program up there. Came back into New South Wales. We conned her into coming back into New South Wales and um, took up a clinical leadership role in Western New South Wales and is now the coordinator of, of uh, uh, the district in terms of mental health and drug and alcohol. And that's where I'm going to leave it. And I'll, um, but I just wanted to say that, you know, that, you know, it has been a, a great opportunity to come down here. I know that it's around, you know, um, professional development, what do we do, how do we do it, how do we work with people and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's also really, really critical that we get a, a bigger sense of what it is and how we might be able to contribute to the space in which we're trying to do. Um, we're very young in the in the mental health space. You know, we're babies, I guess, or teenagers, if you if you'd like, um, in the mental health space. We haven't had the luxury of, you know, decades of, of development. Um, um, but what we do know is that the National Mental Health Commission made it a priority. This, you know, in their report, and the state and territory governments need to sort of work out how to do that now. So it's a, real, it's a real challenge to the system and it's a challenge to the space in which we're trying to operate in. Um, and we absolutely uh, welcome um, any support or any activity that might assist in that process. And I think that it's really important that we work out how do we do this work together? How do we do this, whether it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, whether it's refugee people, whether it's underserved populations of, you know, the, the, we need to work out how do we do this. There's an emerging, massive emerging peer workforce that's, that's coming um, and we need to work out how to do that as well. So I think we've got some real challenges in front of us. So I'm going to hand it to Donna. Uh, before I start, I'd just like to uh, firstly begin by acknowledging country acknowledge that today we do meet on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, acknowledge Elders past and pres present, and I'd also like to acknowledge um, any other Aboriginal nations uh, represented in the room and also um, our non-Aboriginal uh, countrymen and women that are here today as well. So yeah, just before we begin, so yeah. So I'm probably going to talk from a little bit of a different perspective to Tom. Tom's obviously sp spoken about you know, that strategic um, um, of things and how I guess that um, applies to services throughout the state. Um, my, I've worked um, probably for quite a while in a clinical role um, for at least the last eight years at it, um, Western. So that includes working in both um, the inpatient setting as well as out in the community. So um, for the last eight years I've supported inpatient and community-based teams from Bathurst out to Condobolin, uh, further west in New South Wales. So. And I guess what I, I, I spoke to Mark um, earlier this week about who my audience was, so I had a bit of a better idea about what might be useful for you guys. So um, I've only got a few slides, but what I want to talk about is, you know, for, for us as mental health nurses and clinicians, 
Um, what, is a, what, what are some of the practical things that we can, I guess, have? Tools, I guess, um, around being able to work better with those Aboriginal people that do come into contact with us and our services. Um, I tend to not talk about, try not to refer to people that I work with as patients or clients. That's a personal thing for me. Um, I prefer to talk about working with um, Aboriginal people. That's the way I like to describe it. So, yeah. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about um, is with regard to assessment. Most people in the room are involved in undertaking mental health assessments, yep. So we have the suite of tools, MOAT tools that we all use, yep, that we all love so much, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and over time there's been you know, lots of questions about, you know, we should have an Aboriginal specific tool, um, we should be able to, you know, they should be more culturally appropriate for people, but I think it's actually the way that we use those tools to get the right information from the person. And I think if you learn some of the skills around that, being able to elicit that information in such a way that it's useful to you, but also allows that person to tell their story, I think is probably where we need to um, frame things. I mean, I've obviously been involved in using those tools for a long time, um, as well as you guys, but I, yeah, I think it's the way you're able to have that conversation to get that information. So. One of the things that's um, important, I guess, is asking the question, asking that person, uh, do they identify as an Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander person? Because we do know in some of the data um, that a lot of Aboriginal people do. I, I'll probably use Aboriginal, the term Aboriginal more than Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, acknowledging that we're working and living on the lands of Aboriginal people in New South Wales. So I'll probably use the word Aboriginal more so than anything. So yeah, so we do miss a lot of people. Um, and I guess asking that question, it actually gives us a whole lot of information. When we ask, you know, are you an Aboriginal person? Then that can also lead on to, you know, who's your mob, where's your country? And people think, well, why do we need to know that? Um, for me, if I was to meet Tom um, in a conversation here, we would probably go through a process of actually working out who we were in relation to each other. You know, we would ask, oh, who are you, where your mob, who's your mob, where are you from? That's a way that Aboriginal people um, I guess define their relationship with the person. So I guess this helps us as clinicians to work out how we might be, um, or our relationship might, um, I guess, develop with the person that we're working with. So it can also inform things like, you know, if somebody's away from country, um, and we do get a lot of admissions out at Bloomfield, we've got a whole range of um, different types of units, rehab units, you know, acute care units. Um, if somebody's in a rehab unit, you know, for an extended period of time, they cannot come from anywhere in New South Wales. And often if they're away from country, away from mob, family, they often um, obviously, I guess, go through a process of, um, I guess, being quite homesick, missing family, and that gets misinterpreted sometimes that they're actually declining in terms of their mental state. So it's important to know and understand what some of that stuff might mean. I mean, I, I think most of you guys work here in the metropolitan area, is that right? Nobody from out west anywhere or... Okay, yeah, yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, a process for people to look at how that might also inform the way that we provide care to somebody. It might um, give us um, some insight as to who else should be involved, involved in that person's care, particularly if we're in a community-based setting, if they identify as an Aboriginal person. Are there services out there that we should engage um, those people with? Are there workers out there who should be involved in that process as well? They might not be in our system. They could be working for an AMS or one of the community managed organisations that um, Tom referred to earlier, so yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, some of this stuff is, 
might seem very simplistic, but even using you know, some of our communication tools, thinking about open-ended questions, um, people understand what I mean by that. Um, the other thing that can be used as well is using statements rather than questions, because we know, or when I know for many Aboriginal people who come in contact with their services, that, that interrogation that happens as part of a mental health assessment can be confronting for anybody, but um, particularly for Aboriginal people who might not um, have the same, I guess, level of literacy as us, um, might feel intimidated by the you know, continual questioning and whatnot that happens. So using statements like, um, instead of saying, did you, did you ask Jim for help? You can say, I know that Jim was down there when you asked him to help you. So it's kind of a way of getting the person there to say, oh yeah, well, when I was talking to Jim, I told him this. So they might respond in that way. So it's a different way of getting that information from the person. The other um, tool, I guess, that people often don't engage is being able to utilise family members. And I know I heard one of the speakers earlier speak about how, um, when they're using interpreter services, that there are some difficulties around that. For Aboriginal people, it's a, I guess it's a, in some ways a, a, a different process. Obviously, we are, Tom showed a photograph of his family, you know, showing a large number of people, but uh, now that's only part of the group. Um, for Aboriginal people, we can, you know, be consider what we can um, call our direct family members as being up to 500 people. So, um, and different people in, those, in that group have different roles and responsibilities for us. Um, you know, sometimes we see young people, for instance, being presented at hospitals with, um, they might be the aunt rather than the mum, but they actually have the same responsibility that the biological mum does. So being able to understand what those relationships are, the kinship system involved in that um, is often quite intricate, but they often have um, similar responsibilities that you know, the biological mum would have for that young person, so yeah. And being able to, I mean, I know within our system we have all this um, process around consent, you know, who the person needs to give consent um, for you to discuss matters with, um, with family members and those who contact us. I think um, it's often the case that, you know, if somebody's ringing to find out about their family member, it's not because they're being intrusive, it's because they're worried about their family member. And I think there are ways that we can give them information without um, uh, giving them information about care and treatment that might um, upset somebody when they find out later on. But I think there's, there are ways that we can do that. I'll keep going to press the button then, I don't need to. <laughs> okay. Um, another thing that I often um, am asked about, in, in the, particularly in the inpatient setting, is understanding um, you know, what is part of a person's illness um, as opposed to being part of a cultural belief system. So I'm talking about, you know, sometimes people might have specific delusions that can be um, often misinterpreted. I think also hallucinations, you've probably heard stuff around, you know, Aboriginal, it's not uncommon for Aboriginal people to report seeing or speaking with deceased relatives or ancestors. Um, that often can happen. Um, and there's, I guess, a couple of things that can happen around that, um, specific, to, specific to diagnosis. So there can be a misdiagnosis. But on the other side of things as well, it could be that the person actually is extremely unwell and could be missed in terms of receiving the right type of care and treatment. So in terms of doing that, I um, obviously I'm a resource there for the guys at Bloomfield, and are, so are the. Um, we've got a number of trainees and some clinicians throughout our district as well that are utilised in that way to support, um, I guess, staff around mainstream staff around finding out 
what is part of a person's cultural belief system and what's part of their illness. So I guess learning how to navigate that and it's important that you, I guess, develop those relationships with those people that you have in your area. Um, understanding and knowing what services are out there. Um, again, it's a little bit different, I guess, in the metropolitan metropolitan setting compared to community, like out in, I guess, Burke, most people are pretty aware of who's around and what they do. Um, I guess it's our business as clinicians to make sure we know and understand the range of services that are out there and how they can support the people that we work with and particularly, I think, knowing who our Aboriginal community is. Do many people know much about the communities they live in, like in terms of the Aboriginal population? No. So that's, I think that's a good starting point, just knowing a little bit about you know who, whose country is this? What's some of the history of the people around here? What does that population look like today? You know, Tom mentioned earlier that we, how many percent of us are under what? 30, 35? 63%. 60, 63%. So you know, knowing what your your community actually looks like is is can help you in terms of the work that you do as well. Aboriginal mental health clinicians. Do people have many people worked with? Any of those guys, trainees or clinicians? Yeah, yep. So we're very fortunate, I think, you know, I mean, to have these guys around. Remembering that sometimes in our system they do get devalued. People think they're not real mental health clinicians, when in fact they can actually do, you know, the same work that others do. I mean, obviously nurses can do some stuff in a clinical sense beyond what a mental health clinician does, but in terms of assessment, um, care and treatment planning, discharge planning, all of those things um, our mental health clinicians can do, but they also bring that unique set of skills around their Aboriginality and what that means um, for supporting, one, the person who's unwell, but also um, their team um, that, that they, they sit with. Also utilising um, family and elders in the community, um, an initi initiative that was um, we tried to establish out at Bloomfield. We've got some long-stay uh, units out there, Emmeroo is one of those. Oh, not Emmeroo, sorry, it's a step down from the in, uh, acute setting, but um, Emmeroo particularly has, we have about 21% of our inpatient population are Aboriginal people, um, so that's pretty high um, numbers. So the NUM and that unit recognised that we needed to do something to make that space more culturally appropriate. And one of the initiatives that we, we had discussed was actually bringing elders on as volunteers so that when we did have you know, numbers of Aboriginal people in the unit, they could actually consult with the elders if they feel, felt they needed to. So, I mean, they're very simple strategies. It doesn't take a lot of money or um, time to develop those, but it's around making the place culturally safe for the person who's unwell, but also it assists, assists the staff in many ways as well, so. Okay, in terms of when a person does come into our care, um, it's also important to, I guess, when we're looking at things around assessment, treatment and care, where possible, always try to ensure that you have some um, involvement from Aboriginal workers in your service. Um, it doesn't have to be the Aboriginal mental health clinician. If there aren't those people available, then you can utilise Aboriginal health workers or those people who work in the AMS setting as well. Do people ever have the experience of um, Aboriginal people asking for bush medicine or traditional healing? Has anybody ever come across that in this? Yeah? No? So we, we have dealt with that a little bit out at um, Bloomfield. We've had people who have requested smoking ceremonies. We've had a, a young man who's requested to have some bush medicine. That he, what wasn't about treating his mental illness, it was about physical, um, some physical symptoms that he had that he wanted to manage. So we, at first I had a whole lot of barriers put up and people said, no, no, you can't do that. We don't know that it works. Um, they sent me down to 
um, pharmacy underneath the hospital to have it tested. And when I turned up down there with this bottle of yellow stuff, they went, oh, we thought it was like tea leaves or something. I said, no, it's not. It's already made up. It's been made from the, the quinine bush. Um, and it's used, to, you know, I guess, to um, treat a, whole, you know, a range of ailments in the Aboriginal community. And then I found um, there was a policy around um, traditional and alternative medicines, and it's a New South Wales health policy. So guess what? They couldn't argue the point. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are things that we find that um, can support some of that stuff. So, And, I mean, when we talk about having you know, people being smoked, it doesn't mean we're going to cure them. It's about giving them some relief from some of those, you know, I guess, the fears they have around their illness and the you know, delusions and hallucinations that exist for them. So it's about giving them a bit of relief around some of that. So, yeah. And even talking to elders sometimes helps with, with that sort of stuff. So, yeah. I guess the other thing is also being able to ensure that the, the person whilst in hospital has some sort of cultural and social support whilst they're there. Again, I guess our set, setting is probably a little bit different um, in, in that we have a number of units that are long stay units. Um, we've got some people that have been at Bloomfield for many, many years. Um, some of those people are Aboriginal people. Um, so we also try to make sure that they've, you know, if there's NAIDOC stuff happening, we try to engage those guys in those activities, bring them out into the community. Often they're away from family, so they don't have um, those family supports in place. So we try to um, link them into that as much as possible and include them as part of the community in Orange as well. So yeah. And that's me.